Book One, Chapter Ten of Clara Vaughan, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Clara Vaughan, Volume One by R. D. Blackmore. Book One, Chapter Ten. Thus was I, and, what mattered much more, my mother, reduced quite suddenly from a position of rank and luxury and a prospective income of £15,000 a year, so much had the land increased in value, to a revenue of nothing and no home. Even to me it was a heavy blow, but what could my poor mother do? We were assured by counsel that a legal struggle would end in expense alone, and advised by the family lawyers to throw ourselves on the good feeling and appeal to the honour of Mr. Edgar Vaughan. Mr. Vaughan, he must henceforth be called. I cannot well understand, still less can I explain, small and threadbare technicalities, motes which too often are the beam of justice, but the circumstances which robbed me of my father's home were somewhat as follows. By the will of my father's grandfather, Hubert Vaughan, who died in the year 1782. The whole of the family property was devised to his son, Vaughan Powers Vaughan, for life, and after his decease, to his sons successively, in tail male. Failing these, to his right heirs in general. This will was said to have been prepared in haste. It was, in fact, drawn by a country attorney, when the testator was rapidly sinking. It was very brief, and by no means accurately worded. Neither did it contain those powers to meet family exigencies, which I am told a proper practitioner would have inserted. There was no reason to suppose that the testator had contemplated anything more than a strict settlement of the usual kind, i.e. a common estate entail, expectant upon a life interest, and under which I should have succeeded my father as his heiress in the ordinary course. But it is the chief fault of smatterers in the law, and country attorneys at that time were no better, that they will attempt to be too definite. The country lawyer in this case, grossly ignorant of his profession, and caught by the jangle of the words tail male, had inserted them at hazard, possibly not without some idea that they would ensure a stricter succession than a common entail would do. When my father became of age, measures were taken for barring the entail created by the will of Hubert Vaughan, and at the time it was believed that these were quite effectual, and therefore that my father was now entitled in fee simple, and could dispose of the property. Upon his marriage with my mother, she, with worthy pride, refused most firmly to accept a jointure charged on his estates, alleging that as she brought no fortune into the family, she would not encumber the family property which had but recently been relieved of encumbrances. More than this, she had even insisted upon expressly abandoning, by her marriage settlement, all claim to dower. This unusual course she had adopted, because of some discontent expressed by relatives of my father at his marriage with a portionless bride, whereby her self-respect had been deeply wounded. So nothing was settled upon her, except her own little estate in Devonshire, which was secured to her separate use. My father had never permitted this excess of generosity on her part, but that he was by nature careless upon such subjects, 
and hoped to provide amply for her interests by his will moreover he was hot to remove all obstacles to their marriage but it was now discovered that he had no power to change the real estate for her benefit in the manner his will imported that he had never been more than a tenant in tail and that entail such that i could not inherit neither of course could i take under his will as he possessed no power of disposition one quarter of all that has been written upon the subject i never could understand and even as to the simplest points sometimes i seem to apprehend them clearly and then i feel that i do not my account of the matter is compressed from what i remember of the legal opinions the leading fact at any rate and the key to all the mischief was that the entail had never been barred at all the legal process called a recovery which was to have had that effect being null and void through some absurd informality they told me something about a tenant to a precipice but they must have made a mistake for there was no precipice on the estate unless some cliffs near the church could be called so and they were never let but that is as it may my father's will was declared to be waste paper except as regarded what they called the personality or in good english the money he had to bequeath and of this there was very little for shortly before his death he had spent large sums in drainage farm buildings and other improvements furthermore he had always maintained a profuse hospitality and his charity was most lavish the lawyers told us that under the circumstances a favorite expression of theirs when they mean some big robbery a court of equity would perhaps consider our application to be recut as they called it out of the estate for the money laid out in improvements under a false impression but we had been cut enough already grossly plundered by legal jargon robbed by statute and scourged by scrivener's traditions we flung away in disgust the lint the bandits offered and left them all estate right title interest and claim whether at law or in equity into or out of the licking of our blood but now my long suspicions and never discarded conviction of my guardian's guilt were by summary process not only revived but redoubled this arose partly from the discovery of the stake he had on my father's life and partly perhaps from a feeling of hatred towards our supplanter that he knew not till now the flaw in our title and his own superior claim was more than i could believe i felt sure that he had gained this knowledge while in needy circumstances and sharp legal practice brought as he then most probably was into frequent contact with the london agents who had the custody of the documents to be in the same room with him was now more than i could bear and it became impossible that we should live any longer in the same house he indeed wished or feigned to wish that we should remain there and even showed some reluctance to urge his unrighteous rights but neither my mother who bore the shock with strange resignation nor myself would hear of any compromise or take a farthing at his hands and he was too proud and stern to press upon us his compunctions statements of our case have been prepared and submitted to three most eminent conveyancers and the three opinions have been found to agree except upon some trivial points more than two months have been thus consumed and it was now once more the anniversary of my father's death i had spent the time in narrowly watching my ex-guardian's conduct though keeping aloof as much as possible from any intercourse with him 
one night i stole into the room which he called his study and where with a child's simplicity i believed him to keep his private documents through thomas henwood to whom i now confided almost everything and whose suspicions were even stronger than mine i obtained clandestine possession of the keys of the large bureau as i stood before that massive repository in the dead of night the struggle within me was intense and long what letters what journals documents or momentous relics of a thousand kinds might be lurking here waiting only for a daughter's hand to turn the lock and cast the light she bore on the death warrant of her father how easy then to snatch away the proof clutching it though it should burn the hand or bosom to wave it with a triumph wilfully prolonged before the eyes of justice's dull-visioned ministers and then to see without a shudder or a thrill of joy but with the whole soul gazing the slow struggling ghastly expiation as this thought came crawling through my heart lighting up its depth as would a snake of fire the buell before me grew streaks of blood and the heavy crossbars a gallows i lifted my hand to open the outer lock already the old cruciform key was trembling in the silver scutcheon i raised the lamp in my left hand to show the lunette guard which curved above the hole when a heavy mass of cold and dark fell across my eyes i started and thought for the moment in my strong excitement that it was my father's hand one instant more and through the trembling of my senses i saw that it was only a thick fold of my long black hair shaken down on the face by my bending and quivering posture but the check was enough a vaughan and that the last one of so proud and frank a race to be prowling meanly with a stolen tool to violate confidence and to pry through letters no suspicion however strong nothing short of certainty if even that could warrant it driven away by shame combined with superstition i glided from the cold silent room and restored the keys to my faithful friend whom i had left in the passage ordering him at once to replace them and never touch them again well miss he whispered with a smile i knew you couldn't do it because i seemed somehow it wasn't like a born we were already preparing to quit the house no longer ours when our dismissal became abrupt through another act of mine what drove me to such a wild deed i can scarcely tell shame perhaps for the furtive nature of my last attempt hurried me into the other extreme and now i was so shaken by conflicting impulse that nothing was too mad for me on the seventh anniversary of my father's death and the last which i was likely ever to spend beneath that roof i passed the whole day in alternate sadness and passion in the bedroom where he died all the relics i possessed both of his love and of his death i brought thither and spread them out and wept upon the one and prayed upon the other i also brought my choicest histories of murder and revenge and poured over them by the waning daylight and the dull lamp and so on through the night until my mind became the soul's jetsam then i procured four very large wax candles and lit them at the head of the bed two on each side and spread a long white cloth between as if my father were lying in state and hung a row of shorter lights above to illuminate the letters of blood then i took a small alarm clock given me by my dear father that i might rise for early walks with him 
and set it upon a chest by the door and fix it so as to ring five minutes before the hour at which the murder befell a cold presentiment crawled through me that at the fatal time i should see the assassin after all these arrangements i took my volume again and sat in the shade of the curtain with a strong light on the page i was deep in some horrible record and creeping with terror and hope when the clear bell rang a long and startling peal i leaped up like one shot through the heart and what i did was without design or purpose my glance fell on the dagger i caught it up and snatched the lamp and hurried down the corridor and staircase straight to my guardian's private room he was sitting at the table for he never passed that night in bed at the sound of the lock he leaped up and pointed a pistol then hid it straight up to him i went as swiftly and quietly as a spirit and spoke seven years ago at this very moment my father was killed do you know this dagger he started back as if i had stabbed him with it then covered his eyes with both hands you know it then i said with a triumph chill all over me it was your hand that used it another moment and i should have struck him with it i lifted it in my frenzy when he looked at me by some wonderful effort calmly steadily even coldly yes he said i have seen that weapon before alas my poor dear brother whether it was true feeling that made his voice so low and deep or only fierce self-control i knew not then nor tried to think you know who owned it i asked with my life upon his answer yes i know who owned it once but many years ago and i know not in the least what is become of him now the baffled fury and prostrate hope for at the moment i fully believed him were too much for my reeling brain and fasting body for one minute's command of my faculties I would have sold them for ever but i felt them ebbing from me as the life does from a wound the hemispheres of my brain were parting one from the other and a gray void spreading between them i tried to think but could not i strove to say anything but failed fainter and fainter grew the room the lamp the ceiling the face at which i tried to look things went to and fro with a quicker quiver like flame in the wind then round and round like whirling water my mouth grew stiff and the tongue between my teeth felt like a glove and with a rush of sound in my brain and throat and a scream pent up yet bursting i fell as i thought through the earth i was only on the floor in a fit when i came to myself i was in my own bed and my own dear mother bending over me pale and haggard and full of tears the broad daylight was around us and the faint sunshine on her face she had been with me ever since in my weakness i looked up at her with a pang of self-reproach to think how little i had valued her love i vowed to myself to make up for it by future care and devotion that violent convulsion and the illness after it changed me not a little both in mind and body end of book one chapter ten